Section 3 of The Lord of Death and the Queen of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Lothian. The Lord of Death and the Queen of Life by Homer Ian Flint. Part 1 The Discovery. Chapter 3 The House of Dust. The geologist, strong man that he was, and by profession an investigator of the unknown, Van Emmon, took the lead. He stalked straight away into a vast space, which, without any preliminary hallway, filled the entire triangular block. Before their eyes were accustomed to the shadow, pretty cold, murmured the architect, into the phone transmitter. It was fastened to the inside of the helmet, directly in front of his mouth, while the receiver was placed beside his ear. All three stopped short to adjust each other's electrical heating apparatus. To do this, they did not use their fingers directly. They manipulated ingenious non-magnetic pliers attached to the ends of fingerless insulated mittens. Before they had finished, the builder, who had been puzzling over the extraordinary suddenness with which the cloud of dust had settled, received an inspiration. He was carrying notebook and camera. With his pliers, he tore out a sheet from the former, and holding book in one hand and the leaf in the other, he allowed them to drop at the same instant. They reached the ground together. See? The architect repeated the experiment. Back home, where there's air, the paper would have floated down. It would have taken three times as long for it to fall as the book. Smith nodded, but he had been thinking of something else. He said gravely, Remember what I told you. It's the air that insulates the earth from the ether. If there's no air here, he glanced out into the pitiless sunlight, then I hope there's no flaw in our insulation. We're walking in an electrical bath. They looked around. Objects were pretty distant now. They could easily see that the floor was covered with what appeared to be machines, laid out in orderly fashion. Here, however, as outside, everything was covered with that fine, cream-coloured dust. It filled every nook and cranny, it stirred about their feet with every step. The geologist led the way down a broad aisle, on either side of which towered immense machinery. Smith was for stopping to examine them one by one, but the others vetoed the engineer's passion, and strode on towards the end of the triangle. More than anything else, they looked for the absent population to show itself. Suddenly, Van Emmon stopped short. Is it possible that they're all asleep? He added that, even though the sun shone steadily the year round, the people must take some time off for rest. But Smith stirred the dust with his foot and shook his head. I've seen no tracks. This dust has been lying here for weeks, perhaps months. If the folks are away, they must be taking a community vacation. At the end of the aisle, they reached a small, railed-in space, strongly resembling what might have been seen in any office on earth. In the middle of it stood a low, flat-topped desk, for all the world like that of a prosperous real estate agent, except that it was half a foot lower. There was no chair. For lack of a visible gate in the railing, the explorers stepped over, being careful not to touch it. There was nothing on top of the desk, save the usual coat of dust. Below, a very wide space had been left for the legs of whoever had used it and flanking this space were two pedestals, 
containing what looked to be a multitude of exceedingly small drawers. Smith bent and examined them. Apparently, they had no locks, and he unhesitatingly reached out, gripped the knob of one, and pulled. Noiselessly, instantaneously, the whole desk crumbled to powder. Startled, Smith stumbled backwards, knocking against the railing. Next instant, it lay on the floor, its fragments scarcely distinguishable from what had already covered the surface. Only a tiny cloud of dust arose, and in half a second, this had settled. The three looked at each other significantly. Clearly, the thing that had just happened argued a great lapse of time since the user of that desk officiated in that enclosure. It looked as though Smith's guess of weeks, perhaps months, would have to be changed to years, perhaps centuries. Feel all right? asked the geologist. Jackson and Smith made affirmative noises, and again they stepped out, this time walking in the aisle along the outer wall. They could see their sky car plainly through the ovals. Here the machinery could be examined more closely. They resembled automatic testing scales, said Smith, such as as is used in weighing complicated metal products after finishing and assembling. Moreover, they seemed to be connected, the one to the other, with a series of endless belts, which Smith thought indicated automatic production. To all appearances, the dust-covered apparatus stood just as it had been left when operation ceased an unguessable length of time before. Smith showed no desire to touch the things now. Seeing this, the geologist deliberately reached out and scraped the dust from the nearest machine, and to the relief of all three, no damage was done. The dust fell straight to the floor, exposing a brilliantly polished streak of greenish-white metal. Van Emmon made another tentative brush or so at the points, with the same results. Clean, untarnished metal lay beneath all that dust. Clearly it was some non-conducting alloy. Whatever it was, it had successfully resisted the action of the elements all the while that such presumably wooden articles as the desk and railing had been steadily rotting. Emboldened, Smith clambered up the frame of one of the machines. He examined it closely as to its cams, clutches, gearing, and other details significant enough to his mechanical training. He noted their adjustments, scrutinised the conveying apparatus, and came back carrying a cylindrical object which he had removed from an automatic chuck. This is what they were making, he remarked, trying to conceal his excitement. The others brushed the dust from the thing, a huge piece of metal which would have been too much for their strength on earth. Instantly they identified it. It was a cannon shell. Again Van Emmon led the way. They took a reassuring glance out the window, at the familiar cube, then passed along the aisle, towards the farther corner. As they neared it, they saw that it contained a small enclosure of heavy metal scrollwork, within which stood a triangular elevator. The men examined it as closely as possible, noting especially the extremely low stool which stood upon its platform. The same unerodible metal seemed to have been used throughout the whole affair. After a careful scrutiny of the two levers which appeared to control the thing, I'm going to try out, announced Smith, well knowing that the others would have to go with him if they kept the telephones intact. They protested that the thing was not safe. Smith replied that they had seen no stairway or anything corresponding to one.
If this lift is made of that alloy, admiringly, then it's safe. But Jackson managed to talk him out of it. When they returned to the heap of powdered wood which had been the desk, Smith spied a long workbench under a nearby window. There they found a very ordinary vice in which was clamped a piece of metal. But for the dust, it might have been placed there ten minutes before. On the bench lay several tools, some familiar to the engineer, and some entirely strange. A set of screwdrivers of various sizes caught his eye. He picked them up, and again experienced the sensation of having wood turned to dust at his touch. The blades were whole. Still searching, the engineer found a square metal chest of drawers, each of which he promptly opened. The contents were laden with dust, but he brushed this off and disclosed a quantity of exceedingly delicate instruments. They were more like dentists' tools than machinists, yet plainly were intended for mechanical use. One drawer held what appeared to be a roll of drawings. Smith did not want to touch them. With infinite care he blew off the dust with the aid of his oxygen pipe. After a moment or two the surface was clear, but it offered no encouragements. It was the blank side of the paper. There was no help for it. Smith grasped the roll firmly with his pliers, and next second gazed upon dust. In the bottom drawer lay something that aroused the curiosity of all three. These were small reels, about two inches in diameter and a quarter of an inch thick, each encased in a tight-fitting box. They resembled measuring tapes to some extent, except that the ribbons were made of marvellously thin material. Van Emmon guessed that they were a hundred yards in a roll. Smith estimated it at three hundred. They seemed to be made of metal similar to that composing the machines. Smith pocketed them all. It was the builder who thought to look under the bench, but it was Smith who had brought a light. By its aid, they discovered a very small machine, decidedly like a stock ticker, except that it had no glass dome, but possessed at one end a curious metal disc about a foot in diameter. Apparently, it had been undergoing repairs. It was impossible to guess its purpose. Smith's pride was instantly aroused. He tucked it under his arm, and was impatient to get back to the cube, where he might more carefully examine his finds with the tips of his fingers. It was when they were about to leave the building that they thought to inspect walls and ceiling. Not that anything worthwhile was to be seen. The surfaces seemed perfectly plain and bare, except for the inevitable dust. Even the uppermost corners, ten feet above their heads, showed dust to the light of Smith's electric torch. Van Emmon stopped and stared at the spot, as though fascinated. The others were ready to go. They turned and looked at him curiously. For a moment or two, he seemed struggling for breath. Good heavens, he gasped, almost in a whisper. His face was white. The other two leaped toward him, fearful that he was suffocating, but he pushed them away roughly. We're fools. Blind, blithering idiots, that's what we are. He pointed toward the ceiling with a hand that trembled plainly, and went on in a voice which he tried to make fierce, despite the awe which shook it. Look at that dust again. How did it get there? He paused while the others, the thought finally getting to them, felt a queer chill striking at the back of their necks. Men, there's only one way for the dust to settle on a wall. It's got to have air to carry it. It couldn't possibly get there without air. 
That dust settled long before life appeared on Earth, even. It's been there ever since the air disappeared from Mercury. End of chapter 3 Recording by Ryan Lothian